In the month of February, I made a determination that I was going to embark on an experiment to reset my eating habits. Thank you for not applauding. That was going to make me feel really bad if you had all kind of joined together with the finally. Um, what happened was is, uh, in late 2016, I, I went to the doctor, uh, my family physician. I'll call him Dr. G to protect his identity. I had to endure the annual medical physical, which for me is not really annual. It's sort of kind of every other year because I'm not fond of going to the doctor. Um, I avoid it kind of like I avoided social media during election season. It's just unpleasant, you know, and so you're like, oh, boy. So uh, for me, uh, uh, the, the time at the doctor was, as advertised, um, unpleasant. Uh, he, he looked at my blood results, um, compared and contrasted my past physical fitness, asked some tough questions about diet, and then he announced to me, and I quote, Mr. Ryer, if you continue eating like you do, you're going to die. Now I ask you, is that very sensitive? I mean, my feelings were hurt by that. I, I felt judged, frankly, judged. Well, as you know, it's not judgment. That is the role of a doctor to tell you the truth, to tell you whether or not something is actually going to harm you. And in my case, uh, a, a poor diet at my age is not going to extend my life at all. Think of it like how we employ a, and retain attorneys. We pay lawyers big dollars to tell us the truth. If you're facing a quandary, legally speaking, you pay an attorney to tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. And, and there are people that have made fun of attorneys, but the good attorney is willing to let you march out the door angry at them for giving them the advice they need. It's not judgment. That's what you pay them for. It's to encourage you to do something that may be counterintuitive to whatever default has been set in your mind or heart, but what is actually good for you. It's a challenge to change because the behavior or the direction you're going is, is actually harmful to you. There is a presumption that they're telling you truth that it's good for you even if it hurts. I'd like you to take these thoughts and package them together with this, that when we talk in the New Testament context and in the, in the church of Jesus, using the word repentance, this is what we're talking about. Now, the word repent is fallen on hard times in our generation. Um, Hollywood has definitely taken advantage of uh, the stereotype, which, of course, is sometimes a reflection of people's real experience. But usually when you hear the word repent, it's repent, turn or burn. It's some kind of characterization of a fundamentalist Christian minister scaring the crap out of you so you'd quit doing something you were not supposed to be doing. This is what repent is. And so most of us, and I include myself in this, when the whole word comes up, I have a, I have a natural inclination to go, ugh. You know, let's talk about something other than repentance. You know, because I really don't want... To, to even get into that category of what I would call sort of kind of weirdness. But repentance is merely a call to follow Jesus. And sometimes it's a, a, a challenging call to change. And because what 
we, of what we know about the Lord through Jesus, it's actually easier for us to see that this is a call that is both gracious and truthful. Repentance is about following Jesus. Followers of Jesus will actually follow him one way or another. You're either going to do it by grace through your own will or if you're a child of God, he's going to help you with that. Like our brother Jonah that we're going to look at today. This passage of Jonah is actually dealing with the subject of repentance. And and, uh, by way of helping us see it and understand the context even more vividly, what I'd like to do is read the last half of of today's reading from The Message, which is Eugene Peterson's sort of modern-day paraphrase of the New Testament. And because I think Eugene Peterson's great, I'll trust his paraphrase for our purposes. But let me give you... uh, the, the overview first. Jonah has rebelled against the Lord as we've looked in weeks past. And now he's in the bottom of this boat and they've woke, awakened him and told him, pray, we're all going to die. The ship's going crazy. There's a storm. We're, what, help us. And, and then they bring Jonah to the top deck and have uh, an intervention of sorts with him. And Jonah is called to task for what he has brought everybody else into. So I read from Eugene Peterson's. Then the sailors said to one another, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit on this ship who's responsible for this disaster. So they drew straws. Jonah got the short straw. Then they grilled him. Confess. Why this disaster? What is your work? Where do you come from? What country? What family? He told them, I am a Hebrew. I worship God the God of heaven who made the sea and land. And at that, the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, what on earth have you done? As Jonah talked, the sailors realized that he was running away from God. Our passage today in Jonah, as really this whole first section of the Jonah addresses, is, is talking about turning from our way and following God's. It is a call for you and I to turn, to change, and trust Jesus and live and walk as he did. And today I want to actually look at Jonah in terms of the experience they were having on the boat and what that tells us at times about what repentance practically looks like for us. You see this word repent frequently in the New Testament. Jesus said, in essence, in essence, in Matthew 4.19, when he was calling the first disciples, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He was saying, follow me. This is what repentance is. In Acts 3.19 and 20, Peter was addressing a crowd. The apostles said, repent therefore and turn back. So here is the definition of repentance. It's an actual change of mind. It's a change of direction. It's a commitment to turn and follow that your sins may be blotted out. And this is what I love and what really we'll talk about too is the, the benefit of seeing the call to repentance through the imagery and the understanding that we have of the gospel, which is the, the reason we repent is that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Some of us need the Lord to move in our lives in a new and fresh way. And he's saying to us, just turn and follow me in this particular area that you're dealing with. And I'm promising you that times of refreshment will come. And so what does 
repentance? What does turning look like for us? And in varying seasons of life and in varying times, it might look different. The first uh, thing I would like to point out is sometimes repentance looks like we're called to throw it overboard. All right, sometimes repentance for us is throwing whatever it is we're dealing with overboard. Let's read here in verses 4 and 5. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. These sailors were men of commerce, strapped to the deck of their ship were their life's material possessions. A ship has natural ballast that keeps it upright, even in stormy seas. However, when that same ship is top-heavy with a lot of extra things, sailors find out in the middle of a typhoon that those possessions, securely strapped to the deck, are actually going to be the death of them. So they gotta go. In the middle of a life storm, you realize what life is all about. Perhaps you've been there. I know I have. And the things that might have been quite valuable to you all of a sudden become worthless in light of saving yourself. Some of our jobs, some of our hobbies, some of the relationships that we might have may actually be the problem. And God has brought you and me at times in my life to a point of repentance and calls us to throw those things overboard in an effort to rediscover his life in you. You see, he wants to bring a time of refreshing. It's going to be found in following him and knowing him and enjoying him. And oftentimes we take the stuff of life and we try to make the stuff that's piled on top of our ship that which defines us and gives us life. A book that significantly impacted me that I would like to commend to you, if you're going to read one this year, it would be Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. It had a profound effect on my thinking several years ago. Keller says this, The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. Whether it's a business interest or a personal relationship, some things that we've clung to to define our lives or poorly provide for our soul's needs have come to symbolize what is actually dragging us to our death. Things that may be good and may have been necessary for us at one time have now begun to threaten the ballast of our lives and potentially causes our very lives to capsize. This is not new to the New Testament thinking, the idea of abandoning things that are burdens and potentially uh, devastating to our faith. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
In another translation, it says, let us throw off that which encumbers us and entangles us. Maybe it's spending habits or compulsive purchasing of things you can't afford and don't really need. The rush of buying something new is addictive, but maybe your shopping is threatening to choke the life right out of you, let alone the finances of your family, potentially the strength of your marriage. Perhaps you've had unfettered access to the internet and it's been fastened to the deck of your boat and your compulsion to look at pornography is threatening to capsize your life and your marriage. Perhaps it's time to consider cutting it loose. You can get the internet at work. You can get the internet at Starbucks. Goodness, you can get the internet here at church. Why do you need it at home? Some of us have made the decision to eliminate or severely restrict our internet, internet access. Why? Because we've found that it's poison to our souls. It's become something that took over, even if it isn't seedy. It's just the compulsive checking of your Facebook status or something along those lines. Life getting choked right out of us. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now that's tough, tough counsel from the great physician. See, Jesus tells you this not because he just really likes to, you know, bully you, but like my doctor... He's going to come and bring the truth to you and not because he doesn't love you or is being judgmental, but precisely because he loves you and wants to bring life to your soul. He wants to bring a time of refreshing to your soul. You know, two weeks into eating, right? And I'm already feeling better. I should have known that. I've had times in my life where I ate well and exercised and felt better. It just took something to get me into gear. There was a promise You'll feel better. Your life will be healthier. This is the same commitment that Jesus is making to you as your Savior to say, I'm going to be gracious, but I'm going to be truthful to you. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. And sometimes when we're called to repentance, we're called to throw it overboard. Sometimes also we're called to submit to authority. Now, before you get too far ahead of me, we're always called to submit to God's authority in our life, whatever that looks like. But in particular, there are times when God is calling us to repent, and the primary issue is our willingness to submit to what he has said in his word. In this text, verses 7 through 8, we learn an important principle of biblical interpretation. In verse 7 it says, They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now you look at casting lots as the means of discerning God's will, and you think, Is this really how we're supposed to do this? 
Well, much of our study in Jonah thus far has focused on God's sovereignty over all things, including our bad decisions, and this would be one of them. We can see even through the practice that was never given to us as a means of discerning God's will that God still used it nonetheless. God used this casting of lots to bring Jonah face-to-face with the reality that God was hot on his trail and that there was no escaping the divine call on his life. You may say, hey, Pastor Chuck, didn't the book of Acts record the apostles casting lots to replace Judas? And I'd say, yes, but this isn't the biblically prescribed means for us to discern God's will. Just because the Bible says it was done a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that that's okay. And this brings us to really three points of biblical interpretation that I share with you only because I know we're encouraged to spend time in the word on our own and one of the things that was the fear of the Roman Catholic Church when the Protestant Reformation took hold in the 16th century was you were going to turn a bunch of people with no biblical interpretation knowledge loose to look at scripture and then misinterpret all over the place to their own damaged souls And we do have things that we would like to encourage people to remember as they dig into the scriptures. And it's relevant to this text because the first principle being distinguishing between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive in scripture. There are things that are described like having slaves that doesn't necessarily, in spite of what people say in Mississippi, mean that it's okay. It's not okay. They did it, but that doesn't make it okay. They're just describing what was actually taking place in the context. In in the Bible, there are times where they cast lots, as we've seen, and they try to figure out what God's will is, but we know from the totality of Scripture that, that this is just a description. There are times in Scripture where it is specifically prescribed. This is how you discern my will. This is how you do it. Romans 12 Do not conform any longer to the standard of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove the will of God. What is his good, pleasing, and perfect will? And Solomon would say in the Proverbs, in the abundance of counselors is much wisdom. See, we've been given very clear direction on a variety of things and how we discern. And so we have to be able to distinguish between what is a described And what is a prescribed verse of Scripture? What is a story being told and what is a command? The second principle of biblical hermeneutics, or what's just the science of interpretation, is that the most clear passages interpret the less clear ones. And so we read every passage of Scripture through other Scriptures. We, we, we strive to understand Scripture by reading it. What we know of other Scriptures that are crystal clear inform those that are less clear. And the, and the third principle is that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. We call it gospel-centered hermeneutic. We read things through the revelation of who Jesus is, and this is significant because there are so-called Christians Christians, and I've seen them at Christian colleges, teach through Jonah with no reference to Jesus and what the purpose of Jonah was in terms of showing and depicting and foreshadowing Christ coming to us. Just the study of this group and what we're supposed to learn principally about how to do the life of God instead of understanding Jonah through who Jesus is and what we know about Jesus now and what we know that Jesus shows us about the Father that they didn't know in the Old Testament. We have 20-20 hindsight now that people who didn't get to see Christ did not know. That is the privilege we have. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is the Jesus who shows us a picture, gives us a complete picture of who God is because we now see in the flesh God. We see his attributes more clearly than we've ever seen it. He is the image of the invisible God. John MacArthur makes this clarification. What does it mean that he is the image? It doesn't mean he was created in the image of God. That's Genesis 1.27 and speaks about man. We were created in God's image. He is God's image. And there's a big difference. He is the replica. He is a, the copy of God. He is the exact reproduction. He said, if you've seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. Oftentimes when God is calling us to repent, the primary issue is our willingness to submit to what he says in his authoritative word. And so we've used, oh, that can't mean this, and I'm not going to pay attention to that section of Scripture, and this isn't going to happen that way as an excuse to avoid having to submit to what he says. If Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead, as we believe he has, and sits at the right hand of the Father, then he is our creator. We were created for his pleasure, and he has every right to command us to obey and expect us to gratefully do so. And with the benefit of gospel-centered hermeneutics, we now know that the reason for his command to obey him is our ultimate good. In the person of Jesus, we can see God's patience and love, and that helps us fully form a less clear understanding we may have had that God is just an all-powerful king. He is that but we know him to be a benevolent ruler. My daughter comes home from college and I have to take her car to get serviced because she doesn't like doing that and of course doesn't want to have to pay for it, so she waits till I get it and then I go, okay, I'll take it and get. So you go to get an oil change and she has a little Mini Cooper and these German engines, they say, you know, one of the things you want to do is make sure you use synthetic oil. And I'm thinking, okay, sure, it'll keep the engine running great. And that sounds great until you go to pay for it. And synthetic oil costs twice as much as regular oil. Now, it's supposed to be incredibly better for your car. And the creators of this car have said so. Your car will last longer and save you in the long run if you will use this type of oil. But there's this moment where you go, am I going to trust the many people? Or are they part of the industrial complex that's trying to rob me? You know, and then you kind of start, I do, I have this like moment, this existential crisis where I'm kind of trying to figure out whether or not I, I go with the synthetic oil or do I just say, oh, forget it, man. I love coal miners and real oil, you know, and <laughs> ultimately we're called to trust God. He created us and submitting to his word and his authoritative word in our lives is us saying, you know better than we do about how we are supposed to work, let alone what pleases you 
and what brings glory to the character and majesty of Jesus. Sometimes we're called to submit to authority. And then finally, sometimes we're called to redefine our identity. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. I love that. The quote is, what is this that you have done? You recognize it's not by mistake that this has been interpreted without a question mark. This is not a question. This is what happens when your kids do something you know they're not supposed to do. And wait till you have teenagers. It will happen to you too. You say a statement, in, and it sounds like a question, but what you're saying is, what have you done? I know exactly what was done. In this case here, these guys are saying, you have, what have you done? You, whatever you did, we're in trouble because of you, chief. You know, you're in trouble. All this havoc is going on in our lives because of something you did, and then you generously brought us on this cruise with you. Thank you very much. What have you done? I find it really strange, and on my first reading of this text, I, 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 is no stranger than the last time I read it, when Jonah's response to them when they ask him, who are you? He says, I fear the Lord. And I, and I thought, that doesn't seem to be the, the story thus far. You know, he, he claims to be someone who is a Hebrew and fears the Lord, even as he's in rebellion. He's going the wrong way. God has told him to do this and he's going to do that. It's because his identity, his primary identity was as a child of God. In Jonah's case, he was classically redefining himself. Sometimes we're called to redefine our identity. And this may be the most difficult of the three things that characterize repentance. Jonah was able to say he was a God-fearer because that was his primary identification. However, he'd rebelled against the Lord and was clearly cornered and could do nothing else but return to his father. He understood he was being called by God to declare whom he was ultimately responsible to. Jonah was simply responding what he knew to be true, and that was he is ultimately responsible to his creator his master, and his father. Identity is a, a big issue in our, in our society. I mean, there are many who would like you to form your identity in something other than Christ. And by nature, we kind of sort of like that. It, it, it gives us a sense of immediacy. It, it at times scratches an itch to feel like we belong Rankin Well Wilborn, who's a pastor here in Los Angeles, wrote a, a book called Union with Christ that's worth reading. And he says this, against the prevailing mindset of our day, you are what you make of yourself. Union with Christ tells you that you can discover your real self only in relationship to the one who made you. You are not you cannot be self-made. Union with Christ tells you 
that you can only understand who you are in communion with God and others, and that is a wildly countercultural claim. Jonah's identity was as a God-fearer. Our union, if you're a Christian, our union with Christ is our identity, not our political party, nor our social group, not even our sexuality. Our identity is who we are as the children of God. And that at times will put me, and if you're going to follow Jesus, put you at odds with friends who want us to fully embrace their identity as our own. This is certainly true in our divided political culture. In the South where I lived for two decades, there was considerable pressure to embrace conservative politics without question or be labeled a liberal and marginalized. I can tell you here in California, my experience has been 180 degrees the other way. You will submit to our understanding of how the world really works or we will marginalize you. Because my identity is in Jesus, because I am secure in my knowledge that I am his child and I'm loved unconditionally, I can accept the fact that some of my friends may reject me because I won't embrace their primary identity as my own. And I understand why we do it. I've been to the big rallies for civil rights and against abortion rights, and I've got to tell you, in crowds of hundreds of thousands, you feel safe and secure. You feel like you're not alone. You feel like you're on the right side of history. You, there are all these things that make you feel better about you, and so it's really easy to say, I'm going to lean into that, and that's going to be me. That's who I am. That makes me feel good. There's a danger in that, though. There's a danger in that when you define yourself by anything that could change with time, you can't really define yourself. You see, if time or the influence of others or additional information can change the essence of who you are, then you don't really know for sure who you are. You lose the security of truly knowing who you are because we'd just be temporarily identified with this cause or that job or this person because it all can change, unlike the God who created us who never changes. When your identity is in him, nothing changes. The political systems may change. Your physical condition may change. But your identity doesn't change. It can't change. You are created by God, for God, to enjoy God and be enjoyed by him. I love my vocation as a minister, but God has done a work in me in the last decade or so to release me from that which was strapped to the deck of my lifeboat. My identity was being formed by whether or not I was good at what I did or whether or not people thought I was uh, successful at it. Maybe you know what that's about. And I thought it was going to be the source of life for me, and it almost took me under. And God graciously just cut those ropes and let that all fall into the sea. And I have seen my heart return to a certain ballast because of it. If God chooses to make me a college professor, God forbid, or a high school teacher, no kidding, my Providence friends, I'll do it because my identity's in Christ. 
I love my wife. She loves me. We are in wedded union with Jesus and have been for 26 years and are glad to be so. But Lord forbid either of us pass from this earth while it would be difficult and sad and lonely and, in, and, and have all sorts of ramifications that would create painful change in our lives. The core identity that both Carolyn and I have as God's child would not change. It may be an awful season of life, and it certainly would be. But my identity, my identity, Carolyn's identity, is the one we'll possess for all of eternity in the presence of Jesus. We're the children of the living God. And sometimes repentance is you and I throwing aside that identity that makes us feel sort of special compared to others to say, you know what, my identity's in Christ. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? God is saying, I want to provide a time of refreshing for you. Turn, follow me. Maybe it's throwing something overboard. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's saying, okay, I'm finally going to submit to your word. Your word says I shouldn't do this. I should do this. These are the principles. These are the things that are going to guide. These are the truths that are going to guide my life. Perhaps it's a whole re-engineering of who you are. Tim Keller said this in Counterfeit Gods, the way forward out of despair is to discern the idols of our hearts and our culture. But that will not be enough. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God, who revealed himself both at Sinai and on the cross, is the only Lord that if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Let us pray. Father, today we're thankful that you bring us truth. And while perhaps we naturally and the culture in which we live would say that if we hear something that is hard to hear, that it's judgmental, but we're thankful that it comes from the heart of the great physician who loves us and cares for us and um, will tell us painful truth if it's in our best interest to hear and obey. And we thank you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And what we do is cry out to you, Lord Jesus, come and give us grace to trust you. Help us to know you, to walk with you, to enjoy you, and then, Lord, fuel us by your love and affection for us to be people who, as you've commanded those who would call themselves your children, help us to be people who would follow you. For we pray this in Jesus' name.